Good morning. Good to see you guys this new year. Excited about continuing our tour through the Bible. And today we're going to be looking at an overview through the epistle of the Second Thessalonians. So would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray together and ask for God's blessing as we look into his word. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we are in desperate need of you this morning. As we open your words, we need your spirit to open our eyes to delight in these truths, that we would see you high and lifted up, that we would recognize that you are Lord over all, that you are just, that you are faithful, and that we can trust in you. And ask God that you would encourage our hearts, encourage our church, that we might see and glorify your great name as we live as servants of Christ. We love you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, as we go through our overview, we're going to really have four main priorities. Uh, We're going to look at the background and setting, again, of uh, this epistle, the second letter to the church at Thessalonica, and then we're going to look at an overview and some outline details to help us kind of get the structure of the letter that Paul's writing, and then thirdly, we'll identify the purpose of 2 Thessalonians, and then last, we'll go back and overview um, this short letter Um, That's only three chapters long. We'll survey through it and see if we can identify the ways in which Paul's theme is really evidenced and overflowing in each section. So first, let's look at the background and context of this letter. Details that we always seek to understand as we're going through and studying the letter is specifically the author and the audience. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, we see those groups identified. It's Paul and Silas and Timothy writing to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul also identifies himself at the end of the letter saying, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Paul, the apostle, is writing to this church that he had planted in Thessalonica, and he's writing to this place that is a a central, crucial location in the first century world. Uh, We need to recognize here on the map that um, Thessalonica is located at the top of the Aegean Sea. It was the capital and uh, this northern region, rather, of Macedonia. And the majority of the natives there were Greeks, but it really was a melting pot culture. There were many Romans and Orientals and Jews that likewise populated this thriving city. In their uh, location was crucial in the sense that they were one of the three main ports in the Aegean Sea. Um, There's three sections. Um, uh, Achaia and Corinth was the primary location down there. And then across the Aegean was Asia. And Ephesus was the primary port city over there. But to the north in Macedonia, access to that region was was achieved through the port at Thessalonica. Likewise, the um, Ignatian Way was this road that connected the east to the west. And Thessalonica was right on that route. So everything kind of went through Thessalonica in regards to travel, both by sea and by land. And so this was a primary location for Paul to visit and plant this church, and also a great desire in his heart for these concerns that came up that the church was experiencing persecution. We see in Acts 16 that Paul records during his second missionary journey, really launching into the Macedonian region, starting in Philippi. And After Philippi, they experienced persecution. They moved to Thessalonica. They planted this church, as we saw in our overview. After further persecution, they moved to Berea, and then all the way down to Athens. 
And then as Paul was leaving Athens, going to Corinth, he sent Paul, or he sent rather Silas and Timothy back to the Macedonian churches, hearing of their persecution, wanting to encourage them. And we remember these two uh, compatriots of Paul, they return back to Corinth and give reports. They want to say, hey Paul, here's how the churches are doing. And we saw in our study through 1 Thessalonians that this is when Paul actually wrote the first letter to the church at Thessalonica. He sent someone, we're not sure exactly who it was, went with this letter and gave it to the church at Thessalonica. He desired to encourage these suffering saints, as we saw, to continue in holy living in light of their coming king. And it's likely that one of Paul's um, uh, compatriots, as we talked about, delivered this letter, dished it off to Thessalonica and came back. And right away, he gives a report to Paul, and Paul's like, there's some concerns going on at this church still. And so within maybe three months, he's already writing a second letter because there's issues that have come up. There's false teaching about the end times that were being believed by these young believers, and there was this wrong living that resulted a sort of fatalistic or fearful thinking that caused them to become idle. They stopped working. And Paul knew that what you believe always impacts how you live. So Paul's ministry revolved around this bright and loud proclamation of truth, the truth of God's word. And because he knew that the truth must be believed in so that it would be lived out in daily life. So Paul sought to address these issues, these errors, in writing the second letter to the church at Thessalonica and sends this letter to them, desiring that they would understand rightly the truth and live in accordance with it. So Paul wrote this second letter to the church at Thessalonica around 51 AD from Corinth during his second missionary journey. And these letters uh, are some of the earliest of Paul's writings. Um, Galatians is likely the first letter he wrote that's in the canon of scripture. And first and second Thessalonians would be the second and third letter. So having looked at this background, reviewed some of this context that we saw in our overview as well of 1 Thessalonians, let's dive into the outline of this letter that Paul was inspired to compose. First, we see in a letter, this genre, we have this, these anchor points at the beginning and the end of a greeting and a salutation, the start and the beginning, the open and the conclusion. And in between, we have really two sections. There's going to be the first chapter and then the following two chapters. And in this first section, Really, Paul's seeking to encourage these saints that are suffering to endure. He wants to continue to encourage them, very similar to his first letter. But then in the second half of the letter, he really switches to correction. He's offering correction from God's word about lies that were being believed, both in their thinking and in their living. He says um, in this first chapter, chapter 1, he talks about, in verse 3, "...we ought always to give thanks to God for you." And in verse 4, he says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. So he's seeking to encourage them, saying, you're growing, you're enduring, and we're thanking God for those things. Paul continues in the second half of chapter 1 to encourage them by seeing how their endurance in suffering actually was evidence of God's justice. And then in chapters 2 and 3, he offers correction about their thinking and their living, what they believe and what they do. In addition to their physical suffering, they were being led astray by false teaching that they were experiencing God's wrath, that they were living during the day of the Lord. And Paul heard of this and sought to readdress this growing concern in Thessalonica. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5 
even evidences that he had been teaching them things and reminding them these things. He says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And so he's, he's emphasized it both in the planting of this church and reminded them in 1 Thessalonians, and now he's bringing it up again, that they need to remember the truths they've been taught and that are evidenced in God's word about the day of the Lord. Then in chapter 3, he shifts toward addressing a correction of their living, what they're doing with their lives. And in 2 Thessalonians 3.11, he says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but rather busy bodies. Paul knew of this issue even in his first letter. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he says, We urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle. He gave instructions on how to deal with this, but in this letter, he really fleshes that out. He gives more instructions about how the church is to address this sin issue. And in 2 Thessalonians, Paul admonishes them in the truth regarding idle living. Similar to 1 Thessalonians, we observe Paul's passion and his pattern of prayer in this letter as well. We see three prayers that start and transition between the key topics of this letter. In the first prayer, the opening of the letter, we see Paul's thankfulness to God for these believers' growth and endurance and persecution. Then in the second prayer, at the end of chapter 1, we see God's, uh, a petition for God's power to sustain these believers in their resolve and in their faith. And then thirdly, we see at the end of chapter 2, a prayer and an expressed desire for these believers to, to stand firm in the truths of the gospel that they had received and believed. So due to how close these two letters were written, uh, time frame wise, it can often appear as you read through them that they sound very similar. Um, but there are some distinctions that should be noted in the themes that Paul emphasizes throughout the second letter to the church at Thessalonica. Specifically, um, two themes that pop out as you study and read through this book is that God's justice is both toward the ungodly and the godly. And for those who are suffering and experiencing uh, the injustice of man against them for what they believe and what they're holding to be truth, knowing that God is just is supremely important. This letter um, that is really short, I mean, you flip the page and you're already in the next book, um, tells of, of those who oppose Christ in this sort of language. He says that they will be repaid by God, that they will be afflicted by God, that they will suffer for their disobedience to Christ, that they will be cast away from God's presence, that they're destined for destruction, that they will be brought to nothing, that they will perish because of their refusal to love the truth and their belief in the lies that condemn them. This sort of language is what Paul is using over and over again to remind them that God is just. But he also says for those who trust in Christ, for those who await the return of their king, they will experience God's justice as well. They experience it in his grace to endure through suffering. They experience his justice as they, they are told of a relief that will come from their afflictions at the revelation of their Lord. And they're told of God's justice that they will be delivered from evil. So in, in this letter, you see a, sort of a shifting weight. If you have two feet you stand on, you see this sort of weightedness in the first letter of you see God's justice in the deliverance that is coming for his saints. And in this letter, he's shifting the weight to the other side. Say, you also need to remember that God is just against those who oppose him as well. And in, in addition to this, we also see a second theme of endurance in affliction. In chapter 1, Paul would highlight their steadfastness and faith that was enduring through affliction for Christ. 
Additionally, he prays to God that God would strengthen their resolve to do what is good and right. In chapter 2, Paul calls them to stand firm and hold fast to the truth and prays that God would firmly establish them by his grace. In chapter 3, Paul instructs them to direct their hearts toward the steadfastness of their Lord, Jesus Christ, and encourages them to not grow weary in well-doing, but to trust in the Lord of peace at all times to endure. Paul pairs these themes together in his introduction even by teaching them that endurance in affliction is evidence of God's justice, not the absence of it. So this idea of enduring suffering and God's justice are paired together to encourage these believers to walk in the truth. The overarching tone of this second epistle is one of exhortation. Exhortation is an urging done by someone that is close beside. It means to call someone to your side so that you might encourage and even admonish them. To exhort is to develop relationships with other believers for the purpose of building them up to help them grow in Christ-likeness. Those gifted in exhortation seek out weak believers and come alongside them to encourage them, correct them, and even show them right living for Christ. And those are all things that Paul does in this very letter. Having reviewed our outline and some of these crucial observations to this letter, um, how is it that we can kind of put all this together? How How do we summarize the purpose of Paul's letter of 2 Thessalonians. Well, it can be summarized in this way, that 2 Thessalonians was written to encourage endurance by trusting in King Jesus, who is just and faithful. Paul was seeking to strengthen the steadfast living amidst persecution. And he knew that they needed to see the truth of who Christ is, that Christ is a righteous judge, and that he is always true to his word. Having overviewed the structure of this epistle and its purpose, let's head back now to our outline to see this purpose fleshed out in each portion of the letter. First, we'll look at the section on encouragement in chapter 1. Chapter 1 is meant to encourage those that, to endure affliction. And he starts really by, by expressing a prayer of thankfulness to God for growth and endurance. He's not saying that something needs to totally change, but that it needs to continue. He actually praises God for their growing faith and their increasing love for one another. And he says, therefore, the result of how encouraged we are at God's work in your life, that we're actually telling other believers about what he's doing. And what he evidences as what they're saying to these other churches is that you are steadfast and you have faith that endures persecution. Saying this is praiseworthy of our great God at what he is doing in your life, even and persecution. And after this opening prayer, he shifts to focus on this sort of attention, the shift of attention on this endurance in affliction specifically. He wants to show them that there is in that their endurance in affliction proves God's justice. Look with me in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 5. He says this referring to the enduring during suffering. He says this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Enduring suffering evidences the righteous judgment of God. That's what Paul says. And he says this in many ways. He says one specifically is that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. We know that Christ's humiliation 
as a suffering servant came prior to his exaltation as king. The bitter always comes before the sweet. Likewise, when we endure suffering for Christ, it is further evidence of genuine faith, which is a mark of every kingdom citizen. He also says that God will repay both the afflictors and then he will relieve the afflicted at Christ's powerful return. He says that God is just not just in judging the wicked sin against him, but also in judging their affliction against you. God is here showing his justice and saying, yes, you are enduring persecution, and that produces good fruit in your life, but I'm not going to let them off the hook for what they're doing to you. God is just, and they needed to remember and entrust themselves to the judge who always judges justly. Paul depicts the Lord's return in judgment at the end of verse 7 when he says that God's powerful justice will be seen. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The idea that God is both just and true even rings out later in the letter um, that Paul has revealed in, in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 15, we hear of this singing that says, Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, for your righteous acts have been revealed. God's coming judgment reveals that he is just and true. Revelation 16 records an angel declaring, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Later we see the altar crying out in affirmation, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Scripture teaches that vengeance is wrong for us to take, but is not wrong for God. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And we ought to remember that God is the creator of all things and that he upholds perfect justice and that with fierce power will come the eternal punishment of all those who reject him as king and who afflict his people. The Christian suffering for Christ, the Christian who suffers for Christ, is not doing so with a this is worthless mentality, but rather our suffering is shown by Paul to be exhibit A on the day of judgment. We also see that God's justice in our rescue, so not only justice in the punishment of the afflicted or the afflictors, but also his, his relief and rescue of the afflicted. And we see this, that he says a timestamp. He says this is when the Savior, our Lord, is revealed. Paul describes this dual purpose of Christ in verse 10. Look in chapter 1, verse 10, when he says, when Christ comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Christ's return is destruction for the unbeliever, but it's glorious amazement for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Paul then transitions and proceeds to pray towards this very end at the end of chapter 1 in verses 11 and 12. And he prays for God's power to endure in their lives. He uses language like that God would make you worthy through enduring affliction. Saying that there's this mark that comes with being a kingdom citizen, and it's affliction. 
It's suffering. And that God is evidencing your true faith in him when he causes you to endure through difficulty. He also says that by God's power that he would make you to fulfill your resolve for good, which is this conviction to do what's right. And also your work of faith, a pursuit in believing what's true. He's introducing here the two correction topics that he needs to bring up, that both their thinking and their living needs to be informed by God's power. And so that, he says, the Lord Jesus would be glorified in you and you also in him according to God's amazing grace in our lives. Paul's praying that God's grace would powerfully work in the lives of these believers to enable them to walk rightly and live rightly, even in the midst of persecution for the glory of God. Christians are those who rely on God's power to endure suffering and ought to pray to that end for one another. So, in summary, he's saying that there's this great encouragement that they are growing, they are enduring, and that they need to be focused on God who is just, to continue to ask God and petition him to strengthen them to endure through suffering. He says praises to God for their growing endurance, and he asks that they would focus on God who is just, who will bring a righteous judgment. And he prays that God would empower them to continually endure for his glory. After Paul's encouragement to these enduring saints, he transitions to really correct some errors that he heard that were bringing up a lot of disputes and a lot of confusion in this young church. We shift over to the second section of this letter. The the, uh, specific topic header would be correction. He's seeking to correct some wrong thinking. In this first part, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, he's wanting to correct errors specifically about, he says, the day of the Lord, about Christ's return. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Paul brings up this topic saying, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be written from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Although Paul had instructed them that they were not destined for wrath in 1 Thessalonians, and he talked to them in the first letter about Christ's return and how they would be caught up together with him in the clouds, there was still some misinformation being spread about in this young church, possibly even in Paul's name. And Paul concludes this letter by emphasizing his own handwriting so that they would provide this sort of verification tool for guarding against falsified letters. And the issue was that these believers thought they were living during the day of the Lord. The hostility in Thessalonica was so bad, these believers thought they must have missed the rapture and been experiencing God's wrath being poured out on the earth. And Paul's aim was to prove that they were not in the day of the Lord. Having written to them previously about the rapture, which he said was received by a word from the Lord, he now proceeds to show them from their own Old Testament scriptures that this is not possible. Read with me chapter 2, verse 3. He says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Paul reminds these saints that the revelation provided regarding the time of God's wrath is evidenced already in Old Testament scriptures. And Paul conveys really two primary events to prove that they are not in the day of the Lord. There must first be a rebellion. 
and that the revealing of the man of lawlessness must come. One who Paul says is being restrained by this sort of restrainer and that he had taught them about this when he was with them. So what are these events that Paul is talking about here? Although rebellion is intrinsic to the fallen man's nature, there is a greater sort of rebellion and falling away apostasy that will happen worldwide in this rejection. A fullness of the transgressors that will come. Paul's aim was to describe, as Daniel did in his visions that he received, the character of this infamous rebel. Something happened with my notes, so I get to actually open the Bible with you guys. Sorry. It is wonderful. Second Thessalonians. Here's, here's how he describes him. He says in chapter 2 that he's lawless, that he's part of this rebellion, that he's one who opposes, that he seeks to exalt himself. Give me just a second here. I apologize. We'll just show you the the word version here. Okay, Second Thessalonians, man of lawlessness. So these events that he's talking about, Paul's aiming to describe Daniel's vision. So if you studied and opened up Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8 and 9, he speaks of um, these characteristics. And I wanted to list out Daniel 7 through 9 so that we can compare it with what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2. So Daniel 7 through 9 describes this man of lawlessness with these words. He says that he is one who speaks great things, that he's a king of bold face, that he is cunning and understands riddles. That he has great power, but it's not power of his own. That he's the prince of destruction, that he propagates deceit, and he commits abominations and causes desolations. And listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2. He's, He's referencing these passages that God's already revealed about this man of lawlessness. And he says that this is this man of lawlessness is one who opposes the worship of anything or anyone other than himself. That he demands all worship be directed to him, that he will even sit in God's temple and claim to be God himself. And that this is one, this man of lawlessness, who is empowered by Satan, a one who, can, who, who has power to do miracles and signs and wonders, and that deceives the nations that already hate God. But the repeated emphasis Paul makes and follows with Daniel's vision in, is that God's power and justice is evidenced over this man of lawlessness. There is not a sentence where Paul mentions this lawless one that his decreed end is not also provided. If you look in verse 3, he is called the man of lawlessness, comma, the son of destruction. Specifically, this is saying you are a man that is doomed to destruction. It's not saying you destroy things and this is characterizing you. Rather, it's this title of the son of perdition, one who is doomed to die, to be destroyed, to be annihilated, to be um, cast into the lake of fire. And then also in verse 8, he says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill 
with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. He says here that God's power and justice is also highlighted in verse 11 and 12. Therefore God will send them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul's challenges, uh, Paul here challenges and corrects the lies that they were believing with the truth of Scripture. And he reminds them that the day of the Lord has not yet come because that day is all about God's judgment on the unrighteous who believe what is false. So you must believe what is true, he says, just as you were set apart by the truth of the gospel you believed. Paul transitions to thank God for this blessed truth that has been given and the truth in which they stand. If you look at the end of chapter 2 and 13 through 17, he talks to them now about a prayer for standing firm in the truth. Paul reassures these believers of their obligation for thankfulness to God for the saving Uh, for saving them from the lies and opening their eyes to the glorious truth of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14 says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is so moved by thankfulness to God for their salvation through the truth that Paul presses home the believer's necessity to hold fast to this truth. In verse 15, he says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. He's saying, don't deviate from the truth and be deceived by lies. Stand in the truth of God's word as taught and written. It has saved you, and it gives you strength to endure. Paul pulls their gaze heavenward to point their eyes to their gracious Lord. In 2 Thessalonians 2.16, he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. He says eternal comfort, hope, and grace only come through the love of Christ. And it is Christ who is our firm foundation that causes us to stand and endure suffering, both in our believing the truth and in our living according to it. Paul transitions in his final section of correction, desiring to address not only false thinking, but wrong living. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, Paul offers correction regarding the error of idle living. After praying for these saints, he requests their prayers as, they, as Paul, Silas, and Timothy minister in Corinth, and that the word of the Lord would be honored, and that the Lord would deliver them from evil. He says, even stating in these requests, his, his focus is driven toward the character of Christ, and he declares in verse 3 of chapter 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have evidence in the Lord about you that you are doing, we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. In light of their faithful Lord, Paul calls them to avoid and reject an idle lifestyle. Some Christians were lazy and refusing to work. 
Maybe things were so bad that they were being fatalistic and giving up, or it could be that they thought the end was coming, so they went ahead and quit their jobs. Although we don't know their exact motives, we know that Paul commands them this. He says, there is to be no loafing around for those who are in the Lord. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul reminds them of his example they ought to follow. Paul was not idle when ministering to them when the church was planted. He didn't presume to take a handout, but he worked hard so that he wouldn't burden anyone else, so that they would see also how Christians are called to live. Paul reminds them of the command he taught them. He said, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul commands believers to avoid Christians who live this way. In verse 6, he says, Keep away from any brother who is, not, who is walking rather in idleness. In verse 14, he says, Have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This sort of lazy lifestyle is disobedience to Christ. And Paul commands an element of church discipline to open their eyes to this error. But for those seeing, uh, but for those who see Christ and recognize his justice and his faithfulness, they are to live out, to live according to the truth that they have believed. And he encouraged them in verse 13 saying, as for you brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Obeying our Lord and working hard is a good thing. It glorifies God. Holding fast to the truth and belief overflows into how we live even a biblical work ethic. And Paul concludes, just as he had begun, by drawing their attention to the grace and peace of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whose power and presence is with them now as they hope in his glorious return. The purpose of 2 Thessalonians, the reason Paul was writing, was to encourage endurance by trusting in King Jesus, who is just and faithful. And that truth is relevant for us today as well. We too need to trust in our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to trust that He is just, that He is faithful, that He is coming, and that He is with us. I hope your hearts are encouraged to study through this pertinent letter, this powerful letter that reminds us of our glorious King. I hope you will also join us next week as we continue in our tour through the Bible. We'll continue our study, and we're going to look at an overview of 1 Timothy together. And with that, you're dismissed, and we'll look forward to worshiping together at 1030.